0: I'm Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast. A podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're going to hear from Steve Pilato. Steve and Amy Pilato are long-term missionaries to Southeast Asia. Despite severe persecution, God used Steve and Amy to spark a disciple-making and church-planting movement I began by asking
1: Steve how he got his call to missions. It really came when I was a university student and we started to read scripture from Genesis to Revelation, asking the question, what's the main thing God's up to out there? And seeing very clearly the sweep of scripture is a God who is about redeeming people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, so that they can enjoy Him and be with Him forever. So then the next question is, well, where are the places in the world where there's no disciples? Where are the places that past missionaries maybe gave up because it was too hard or too difficult in some way? And through that research, we began to pray for different unreached areas of the world. And I was thinking about going to Tibet or or Mongolia, but in God's leading step by step, we... We uh, ended up in the Buddhist part of Thailand. And God began to give me experiences uh, leading Buddhist people to faith. We, We headed off to a remote country, restricted access country. We couldn't get missionary visas or anything like that. I went as a professional civil engineer. And through the context of our development work we were praying that God would allow us to pioneer a church amongst a totally unreached people group mm-hmm. and we moved up we given permission to live in a very remote part of the country that was very very unusual back in the early 90s but we did and through the course of our development project we began looking for persons of peace the peace is is someone who's not only open to the gospel message and hearing that gospel message, but they are people of influence. They are able to refer that faith to the others in their community. So it's not just social influence that they have, but they have an influence to bring the gospel message to their people. Mm. And so we began looking for these God-prepared well-placed persons of peace and I did identify one family who we prayed would come to faith first and they did and they in turn led another 11 families in their village to faith in a very short period of time just a couple of weeks and they and these new believers began talking about their new faith with a great zeal visiting other villages, going back to see relatives in other areas. And that created a huge stir and really scared the local police.
0: This is a country, it's an authoritarian regime that does not smile on on religion at all.
1: That's right, they do not. And even though the legal code allows for freedom of religion, I have been in a number of meetings with government officials who told me that legal code is just to keep the Western world happy. The way they really govern on the local level is to eliminate Christianity from the people. Mm. Now, in recent years, they've really relaxed that to a degree, but at the time they were very committed to eliminating any vestige of Christian faith. And so when you've got 11 families now busily gossiping Jesus all over the hillsides, the police and the army and the local government all cracked down. And uh, there was an incident where they surrounded the village at gunpoint had everyone in the village come into the local school and then the governor who spoke their local tribal language then berated people for about an hour for foolishly believing in this Western religion and uh, then brought out forms to have people sign to deny or if you will to resign out of their faith and God gave them wisdom in that moment even though they'd been followers of Christ maybe six weeks mm-hmm. in that range. And they, there was a spot in the confession form that says, what is your confession about Jesus now? And one guy wrote, I am very glad to follow Jesus. And and they just said these different comments that seemed to make the officials happy that they would sign that, but in fact were not really a denial of a relationship with Christ. There was one scene uh, that sort of sticks in my mind where the governor was pointing his finger at people, which is very unusual in the culture, and said, okay, now that you have been informed that the Christian faith is really an imperialistic plot to undermine our country, and you have been duped into this Western lie, who wants to continue to follow Jesus? Just raise your hand. And everyone's feeling quite nervous. And uh, there was one one lady, who's the wife of the first believer. Is uh, it's like maybe she was half asleep, and all she heard is "Who wants to follow Jesus?" And she just immediately raised her hand and said, "Oh, no, I do." <laughs> and slowly, eh, everyone in the room followed suit. Says, "Oh yeah, we're, we're the ones that we all want to do that." like they kind of missed the point of this whole talk and Mm -hmm. I don't know what he was thinking at that point but it was really a message from heaven that Mm -hmm. God had really come and changed people's hearts and they were going to follow him and there was nothing they could do to get it out of there and seven of the elders went to jail we were asked to then leave which is a little different than getting kicked out they were very polite um, I had two formal reprimands with the government saying that I had created a Christian problem where there had been none. And wasn't it interesting that as far as the eye could see in every village where there had never been Christians, now suddenly there was a, a beaming and bubbling group of believers in the village where I was working. Mm-hmm and i started arguing with him from first corinthians 3 saying oh well this is a work of god you know we we answer people's questions we pray for people but god is the one who does the work and gives the growth and there's no way i could talk them out of thousands of years of animism to believe in jesus mm. We introduce cropping techniques. They don't even listen to me about that. How are they going to listen to me about Jesus? There's sort of my rationale with him. And he said, look, Steve, I don't know if God did this or prayer did this or you did this. Don't ever let it happen again. At which point I said, well, it's going to happen again. And there's nothing you can do to stop of it because it's a work of God. You can get rid of me well and good, but you can't get rid of the work of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts. These people have met. God Himself, and their lives have been changed and that 's what in our final year there, our sixth year in country, actually, I was followed twenty four hours a day mm-hmm. they they wasted thousands of dollars on per diem for these policemen to to somehow follow me about, plain clothes surreptitiously, tracking everything I did, and it was quite joyful to see that there was finally enough evidence to convict me of being a Christian. Mm-hmm. And if it took the government and police to all agree with that, that was really exciting and uh, During those final weeks, we saw a number of others come to faith from other tribal groups And and these groups continue on to today 15 16 years later Well our visa was denied Um, the church leaders all went to jail The main leader, our key person of peace, and his wife continued to actively share their faith, grow in their faith, participate in different training events that were held, not in their town, but in other locations, and became more and more vocal, much to the anger of the local administration. You see, the local government people would lose promotions and advancement if problems occurred under their Mm. supervision and according to the government the the appearance of christians is a problem that needs to be eliminated and so those government leaders were not getting advancements in fact the chief of police was demoted from being the provincial chief of police to being just an ordinary clerk in another province and and others suffered demotion, and they all blamed it on the Christian problem, and so their anger is rising, and they made a plot to abduct this person of peace, which they did on July second, two 2004. They were, this man, his wife, and two of his six kids were abducted,
0: Mm.
1: last seen going to a policeman's house in another town, and literally have never been heard from again, in my own heart, don't believe they were executed. A single phone call was received about a week after their disappearance. And uh, the person who picked up the phone thought, can't prove, but felt quite certain that that was this person's voice. And all he said was, uncle, uncle, uncle. There was a scuffle, and the phone went dead.
0: Hmm.
1: And any attempt to phone back to that number was never picked up. We've had one other rumor that there's a man with two kids that was being held in a re-education camp in a very remote area. But again, and that's unusual. Usually um, when they want people to disappear, but they don't actually want to kill them, uh, you wouldn't do that with a whole family. Mm. Mm. But in my own heart, I don't think they were executed at the time, but they're still alive and being held somewhere. Yeah but that may be wishful thinking, the Lord knows. So the church elders, there were seven of them that had been uh, appointed about six weeks into the life of the church. The church, by the way, met for six Sundays until this incident, and and then they had to stop meeting for a season. They didn't stop meeting forever, but they did stop for a few months and then resume. Um, We had to leave Permanently weren't able to go back, didn't even get to pack up the things in our house, nothing at all. There was no goodbye parties, no farewells, no closure, just oh, he's gone. And uh, eventually, the leaders were released four, five, six months, bit by bit, all of them were released. None of them were convicted of crimes, their cases were dismissed. And, and uh, they just carried on. Mm-hmm. Well, we regrouped at that point and got some great training input on how to do disciple multiplication and church multiplication. We had some of the ideas clear, like finding persons of peace, these key, prepared, strategic, influential people, but didn't really have a full, comprehensive understanding of how to do things in a way that could multiply. So we received some excellent training, it was actually a month-long training on, on church multiplication. And every day we would be presented with a new paradigm shift or a new principle and immediately we were putting it into practice. For example, one of the well, I remember one day it was about 10:30 in the morning and the question was put up on the board, what do you do with a new believer? And we talked around the room, and the answer was, every new believer is a potential new church. Now, potential, it's a little discernment that's needed here, because not everyone can be the core of a new church. But there are, quite often, especially if you're working with persons of peace, those first believers are the core of a new church. So your default has got to be gather their relational network together to form a new church. And, bing, in comes an email. And uh, here's a key disciple that we've been working with. And we had counseled this new believer. You meet in your small group, and you go join the local church that's down the road. So that's what they've been doing. And we see the new paradigm. We thought, you know, this person is a person of peace. And they said, hey, my dad and my aunt are ready to believe. What do I do? And we said, form a new church in your home. Mm. And gather the family networks together. Mm. Lead them to faith together. Celebrate the Lord's Supper in your home. Do ba- You baptize them and so on. And so they're just going gangbusters. And mm. before the course ended, through the email and through a couple of phone calls, a new church had been planted, 60-plus uh-huh. new believers. And they were us Buddhist. People. that's right and all you did was answer a few emails but with a different paradigm yes we answered emails pretty much daily there were a yeah. lot of questions but that yeah. first shift mm. don't go down to the church form your new church was huge and so mm. we shot out of this course saying man this stuff mm. is incredible mm. we've got some quality people we already know and are working with What could we do? Could we train up a team, a band, a missionary band of church planters? And so we began to work on a regional level and did just that for the next six years. And over those six years, we saw about 5,000 minimum uh, that we could actually count, 5,000 adult believers who were baptized, who formed together in about 100 different village churches. So that's 100 different distinct villages around the country. And now are you back in
0: the country by this time, or are
1: you working outside the country? um, Yes, to both of those. We, for a season, about three years, located on the border and did a non-residential approach where we were going in and out of the country, hosting trainings both inside and on the border. And then another three years where we worked through a business platform and continued to train Uh, Church leaders in Mm. the general sense, but uh, certainly focusing on lay church elders and focusing on the pioneering apostolic church planters, people who are going to work in multiple villages.
0: So your role has changed. Uh, I mean, you're not the primary driving force of this thing in the sense of you're not the local worker but you're equipping and mobilizing and, and coaching
1: people who are nationals who are. That's
0: right.
1: right. All, all local national people. So there's many people groups in the area. We focused on four different ethnic groups that we thought were strategically placed. They had villages sort of throughout uh, the country. They Tended to, some of the groups would tend to interact with a lot of different ethnic groups. And so we thought if we could start churches in those groups, they would be well positioned to reach out cross culturally to their nearby, but of another people group, neighbors. And, and so for a six year period, we just did training after training after training. And we were somewhat limited in what we could model. Mm because of the political sensitivity of being a Westerner. And there's always the way things happen, the interactions that happen between local nationals and a Westerner is always different than yeah. local to local. And so whatever I model, it's going to look a little bit different than, than what it would look like if a national is doing that same task, whether that's evangelism or or leading Hmm. or for me church, there's a different social dynamic. So there's limits to what I can do as an outsider. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, you
0: had, you had language, uh, you understood the culture, but the dynamic is totally different because you're not truly an insider. So you, your job was to equip the insiders.
1: Absolutely. Our job is to mentor and then as they mature coach, and even in a more absent way, you know, occasionally coach them as they handle things. Mm. And so at that time, we set a goal uh, for ourselves of seeing three generations of church planted in multiple streams, and that there were We call like area elders or regional leaders who could capably handle any sort of problem that's coming up, particularly the persecution issues that were coming up. Mm. And in these four streams of church planning that got going around the country, there was a lot of persecution. At least 40 different people that we worked with and had come through our trainings, uh, spent time in jail for their faith. Okay. And it became almost very predictable. They would lead a train, leave a training with some new tools and how to share their faith, how to gather a group together in the home. How what was your initial um, training set? And as people went about things in an organized way like that, there was persecution. Uh, it got to the point where the people that were in our church planners, uh, our church planners, and the people they were working with, um. Uh, accounted for almost 100% of the imprisonments and persecution stories that were out on the internet and making their way into reports with human rights groups. I remember sitting at a meeting where we had two organizations committed to religious liberties and the advocating for religious liberties in every country. And they had uh, a stack of reports that they had heard about through different sources. And they they look around the room. There were several of us who, who worked in country and said, hey, does anyone know about this case, this mm. case, this case? And probably, you know, if there were 20 cases they brought up, I personally knew 18 or 19 mm. of them. Yeah. And after about three hours in the room, one of the guys says, it seems like you're kind of in the center of all the persecution. I said, I promise I'm not trying to do this at all, man. In fact, mm. we're not into it at all, and none of them are. It's just mm. these people are effective at sharing their faith. They're actively doing that. Their families are getting healed. They're seeing miraculous signs and wonders. Things are happening, and they're excited, mm. and they're delighted. And uh, so that's, that's where the pushback and the persecution comes.
0: And I think you've said to me previously that, that some of these people lost their lives. Some of them were mar- martyred.
1: There was. There was a total of eight martyrdoms, hmm. uh, just with the people that I knew personally. And, and the martyrdoms were actually quite violent, where hired assassins actually hunted them down. I remember one case in 2001. Our brother, um, who was a church leader, respected in the area, uh, was working with his church to plant a daughter church in another village, was coming back from his rice fields on his motorbike. His 12-year-old daughter was on the back of the motorbike, and a sniper in mm. the woods, a ways off, shot at him. A bullet went through his right thigh. The bike motorbike fell down, and a hooded assassin mm. came out of the woods and walked right up to the man, very close, and shot him dead, right Mm -hmm. in front of the daughter, who was seriously traumatized. Mm. His wife had died from an illness a few months earlier, so he was a single dad with six kids. Now, the church community took in the kids and have raised them to adulthood, and they did what they could, but all of the kids were, were... traumatized by that, and so that that's when I say there were violent yeah. deaths involved, they were like that hmm. and you know, it's very, very upsetting at the time And uh, but there was a real understanding amongst the brethren that this was part of the territory, and it wasn't that people were careless in what they did some would like to say oh well you Christians if you just work smarter this would go mm-hmm. away and I've thought a lot about that is it something in the way we're doing things that we could tone it back or we could be a little more polite and I look at the way many of these persecuted believers handed themselves with interrogating officials and with the police and with maybe a very odd exception, it was exemplary. Hmm. There was a humility, there was a deep respect that was shown to the interrogators, so much so that a number of police did come to faith, others in jail always. Every time anyone went to jail, there was people coming to faith in the jail cell. In fact, we planted whole churches out of those who came out of jail. So I look at the way people handle themselves, and I don't think they were just sort of bringing it on themselves. That this was just part of the spiritual backlash to being fruitful in a pioneer setting. Well, one of the guys, they said, "Have you ever gone to study the Bible with Steve?" That was a standard question we discovered hmm. for all six of them, and uh, the one all said yes. Of course, we went. We went on this date, and it's what we studied, and you know, they just put it all out there. Okay, does he pay you any money? No, he didn't give us any money. That was true. We we didn't pay anybody. You know, if they want to know Jesus, they, that doesn't cost. So they just come. Well, one guy said, no, no, I never studied with him. Well, they knew he was lying because of the corroboration of stories hmm. wasn't lining up. So he was put in solitary confinement. He got an ear infection. His eardrum broke. He lost his hearing in one side. I felt terrible. Like, gosh, it's my fault. He got out and he set me straight. He says, no, this isn't your fault. This is, this is my choice. And uh, he said, I don't mind losing my hearing because I'll be able to hear the praises of God for eternity because mm-hmm. you came. And this is a small price to pay. But I did what I could do in order to protect you because I want you here. Even if you can't come to our houses and I'd been forbidden to come to their houses and they'd been forbidden to come see me, if even if we can never see each other, this was worth it just to know that you're down there and you're praying for us and we're carrying on up here following Jesus. And so that was humbling. Hmm. Some of the other Christians in country said, Look, Steve, you were careless. See, these guys went to jail, people have died. Because they're doing what you tell them to do. And I said, now, wait a minute. Hmm. I'd never have worked that way. I don't order people about, you go to this village, you go there. Hmm. We teach the word. We ask people to be obedient and faithful to Christ, including the command to make disciples and share the faith actively with family and friends. And they are doing that. so one of the church leaders, I remember when he came out of jail, I had a sit down with him and I said, now, I just want to be really clear with you. Are you in jail because you knew me? Are you in jail because I told you to do certain things? He said, that's crazy. No, of course not. We're in jail because we follow and love Jesus and these guys don't like that. So that's kind of how I understood it too. I just wanted to hear Mm -hmm. it from you. Is that really the case? He says, absolutely. We were active in sharing our faith and we kept pushing on that. And many of our relatives loved it. We're free to demon possession, free to illness, their marriages have come together, alcoholism, violence in the family, some of these things have been changing. They love it. And the fact that there's jealous rulers who can't control this and they're mm-hmm. trying to stop it, that's why we're in jail. And I said, okay, this persecution is just part of the territory. This isn't some outsider paying the bills and ordering people to go do a bunch of stuff. This is the Spirit of God leading people forward in a pioneer setting. And that's kind of what happens in these settings. There is persecution, including martyrdom. Steve, what? looking back over that era, how did you change as a practitioner? What did you learn? I think one thing that changed for us is that we really learned about how to equip others who can equip others. We became much less central or important to the whole process. We became people who could really rejoice when people exceeded us in their fruitfulness, in their ability to communicate, to make disciples. That, that was a, a progression that happened. That had to happen if we were going to see generational disciple-making and church planting. Another thing we learned is there's a heavy cost to us, too, as practitioners. There's a heavy cost on our family as schooling became a more and more difficult to fulfill. Uh, emotionally, it was very difficult because we were often the point people who got the phone call, so-and-so's in jail, Um, so and so was just beaten up by the police so and so was just kicked off their land what will I do I don't know how I'm going to survive and uh, we were constantly trying to deal with people's issues I think the whole experience caused us to rely on God that he's going to come in and meet their needs he's going to find that place where they resettle and we did see whole villages or parts of villages not whole villages but parts of villages that became Christian they were kicked out of their village they had to go to a new place in the country and settle down and And we just couldn't we couldn't do that that was not something we could fulfill and you, you we mean really you couldn't saw fix God. that
0: problem you had to trust that somehow God would provide for
1: them absolutely God would provide for them housing and land and he did and he mm-hmm. gave them houses and land and family and and uh But it was a huge toll on our family. Mm -hmm. Emotionally, I mean, it just got to a point where we just could not carry on and had to step out. And as we got to that point, we also saw that the work was at a point where it was much more stable. We had area leaders who were Instead of phoning us saying, ah, I don't know what to do. How do I answer this question from the police? They were phoning me and telling me, oh, I got this question. Here's how I handle it. And here's what God did. And isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, they're no longer really asking us questions. They're telling us the answers and how they handled everything. And it became very clear that we really need to move on. And so we did leave. There were about 100 new village churches, at least 5,000 believers. And uh, they all continue on. As far as I know, none have completely ended. And they continue to reach out and grow. I wouldn't say multiply, but there has been an ongoing addition growth since we left. And that's maybe another lesson we learned. Mm -hmm. As we implemented multiplication principles, we saw rapid exponential growth. As other ministries came in, bringing a little different message, things shifted from rapid obedience to the Word to let's sit and soak and learn a whole, b- whole lot about the Word. And that brought in another message. Some of that was needed, but it did plateau the movement. Mm-hmm. And we've just seen kind of steady growth in the years since we left. So when we left, we had a farewell party. People literally came from all over the country. We had had a couple hundred people come, and they killed the fatted calves. And I'm sorry, we don't eat calves. We we ate pig. (laughs) They killed a couple of pigs, roasted them on the fire, and it was very moving. And I remember one young man at the farewell party who was a musician. He's probably 21 years old, and he says, "Hey, Steve." It's like, you're the one guy that really gets it with us, and you're really good in the language, and look at all these people here that came to Jesus from all over the country. It's like, what gives? How come you're taking off on us? And I got up, and I said, you know, that's an awesome question. It's such a good question. I need to answer it publicly from the microphone to everybody. And I said, I can leave because you are here. I said, here is this guy. His name is Guy, actually. is a great musician. He's composing worship music in the local style. He's got his own music videos on the internet. I said, we had nothing like that when I started. But because you're here, I can go. And look at Brother So-and-so here, who's pioneered a church in his hometown. He's doing great, and they're reaching out to the next village. I can go because he's capably able to lead that church. And I just went around the room, kind of person by person, telling their story. And I said, The reason I can go is because you're here. God bless you. And that was literally our farewell. Wow.